0: Welcome to Brain We are delighted to be rejoined by one of our favorite guests, Roger Hawani. He's one of our favorite guests because we did a book with him, which you can buy if you go and have a look in the link in the description below. But we're not gonna be talking about this book tonight. We're gonna to be talking about Roger's latest edition of The Philosophy of Sex. It's in its eighth edition, filled with about 25 essays on a whole range of topics. And we're going to be talking about some of the more salacious elements of the book.
1: Sure. Thank you guys for having me again on the show. In their essay, Robin Dembrov suggests a, an account of sexual orientation, which is called bi-dimensional dispositionalism. And the reason why it's called bidimensionalism is because it is supposed to track um, both sex and gender, right? And so when we have accounts like this, such as Dembrov's, this raises the question of how to think of sexual orientation exactly. Does it, is it based on The sex of the person or is it based on the gender of the person what does that exactly mean when we say gender of the person is it based on both is it based on one or the other is it a whole spectrum of things and so those cases are meant to basically get us started into this discussion
2: so i take it that the traditional account is that your sexual orientation is determined by your sex and the supposed sex of the person that you're attracted to that's it, that's that's all that matters. And that's Stock's account, which has come under a lot of scrutiny and fire, but it is the traditional account. Then Dembroff adds this notion of gender and perhaps removes the notion of the sex of the person who is doing the attracting, in other words, the subject. So Dembroff thinks that it's the gender and sex of the object or the person that's being attracted to that matters, but not the sex or gender of the person that's attracted to them. Is that correct? Am I getting that correctly?
1: Yes, you're getting that correct, yes. Just to add a little bit to what you're saying, you're absolutely right that Kathleen stock does defend what she calls the orthodox account, or we can call it the popular account, you can call it the common account, any one of these. And it does have a number of crucial features to it. I think Jason, you touched on two of them, basically. One is that it is sex based, so it is not gender doesn't enter the question, doesn't enter the, doesn't enter the picture. And of course, here, one question that comes up for the orthodox. Orthodox account is that given that people do evince some sort of attractions on the basis of what we might call gender or gender presentation or something like that, does, should that play any role in an account of sexual orientation, right? Which I take it one reason perhaps why Dembroff has, has, has their somewhat radical account of this, of this issue. And the other aspect that you emphasized is that this is what Stop calls the reflexivity aspect of it, which is that it is, it includes the sex as you said, of the orienter or the subject, as you said, Jason, right? Perhaps a third component of the Orthodox account is that the number of sexual orientations is limited in a serious way. So it is depending on, so depending, if you go by that generally popular conception of it, you will probably have three sexual orientations. You will have homosexuality, heterosexuality, and bisexuality, right? If you go by Stock's suggestion in the essay, we really actually have two sexual orientations. We have homosexuality and heterosexuality. We do have bisexuals. The only thing is that bisexuals have both sexual orientations or as Stock says, an amalgam of both. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but on, our, on an obvious reading of it, it's the people who have both sexual orientations. And it's sort of, Kind of makes sense to think of it this way, because you can think of human, you can think of human sexual orientations as maybe falling on some sort, not so much as a spectrum, but on some sort of a continuum, you will have, you will have your regular run-of-the-mill heterosexuals. Or these are the people who are attracted to opposite sex. You will also have on the opposite side, the homosexuals who are attracted to the same sex. And somebody might say, well, why not believe that there are people who have both basically or somewhat in the middle? You don't have to be a behaviorist like Kinsey to say that. You can also believe in dispositions and, and, and do that. And so you would think of bisexuals as having both orientations. What's important, I think, about this, and I somebody commented on my blog post about this by saying that that stocks account erases bisexuals. And I think this is a little bit mistaken because I think Bisexuals are simply those people who have these two sexual orientations. So there's no erasure of their identity whatsoever. It's just that we're saying that bisexuality is not some third sexual orientation. It's just that. Now on Dembrov's account, of course, we open the floodgates for a large number of combinations of sexual orientation.
0: What's radical about Dembrov's account, I gather, is that you do away with the terms gay and straight. And part of what I gather the purpose of this work is to say that it's, it's conceptual engineering so it's trying to track some feature in the world but for an overt moral or political purpose the idea that it would be a good thing if we could do away with these two different camps as the demboff describes them and if we could kind of get those people in the same room and one way to do that is if you say well you're all attracted to men who have a male gender uh, and so that puts you in the same category because you're all attracted in the direction. But you could be trans, you could be a man, you could be a woman. So you'd have this variety of people that are all clustered together by the fact that they have the same kinds of attractions. Uh, I suppose one of the things that that Demerow touches on is this notion of a sexual druther, like a sexual taste, I suppose. Uh, and it seems like you could have tastes in a bunch of directions, so you could have a taste for people that are blonde, people that are fat, people that wear assless chaps, and people that are willing to, I don't know, clasp nails around your neck. Are those things distinct from orientation? How do we principally draw this distinction between what your sort of sexual tastes are like? Because you could say, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, well, I'm a straight man who's attracted to women, but I have a sexual preference for women who are quite butch, women who are masculine, short-haired, whatever it is and it seems like that's not really tracking an orientation it just has a kind of flavor aspect to it traditionally the way it's spoken about and maybe what dembrov is doing is trying to add a sense of strength to it by saying well no that's actually an orientation when you have a a masculine
1: woman so in in their essay dembrov does does mention of course the notion of sexual druthers which i which i call sexual preferences i have a paper coming out in social theory and practice called sexual orientation sexual preferences and well-being basically where i try to distinguish between them right my, my preferred term is sexual preferences, but it doesn't make a difference so sexual druthers or sexual preferences and dembrov does say in their essay does raise the question in their essay well why not consider someone's attraction to others based on their sex to be a sexual brother, why think of hair color, a sexual brother or a preference and not sex or gender-based attraction? And Dembroff's answer is, well, their answer is that I'm not sure exactly why, but it just so happens for better or for worse that we are interested in those types of categories, but not others, basically. I think one of the problems that Dembroff's account is going to face, and this is maybe what you were hinting at, Mark, is that somebody could say to Dembroff, look, sexual orientation based on sex makes sense because this is how the species propagates. Uh, From an evolutionary perspective, we could see why desiring someone of the opposite sex makes sense right and so because nature made it such that we would find sexual intercourse pleasurable so that we can so that we can reproduce i'm sure a biologist will nitpick with the way i said it and the terms that i'm using but basically that would be a kind of rough story and then the person would go on to say when it comes to other sexual orientations like homosexuality for example we can give various explanations for it we can either try to account for it in evolutionary terms or we can account for it in some other terms um so, for example, and this is something that often occupies me. It is it if if homosexuality had nothing to do with heterosexuality from an evolutionary perspective, right? If there was no connection between the two somehow, it would be a very striking fact that gay men are just crazy about giving blowjobs. Basically, I mean, why w- why would you be attracted to another male's genitalia and various body parts, right? Why not? Why shouldn't the main attraction be to somebody's back head, for example, right. the fact that sexual and of course, this is not to say that every time we're sexually attracted to someone, we're attracted only to their genitalia. But it is to say that attraction to genitalia makes a big, you know, big big, gay men are attracted to other men's assets, basically, not just their penis. So it's it's it would be a striking fact that this area, this erogenous zone, basically is a a locus of attraction for gay men if it were not somehow connected to 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 heterosexual orientation. But anyway, setting that aside. Someone can say in response to a position such as Dembrov's, I could see why sex-based attractions make sense, right? But yeah. but you have not made the case why gender attractions are supposed to be subsumed under sexual orientation when there is the way that we can account for them as a sexual preference or a droffer, basically. And I don't think Dembrov has done a good job in their essay of removing that doubt. And this is a doubt I think that stock capitalizes on in her essay, which is the i it's trying to because she tries to argue how the orthodox account can easily account for cases. I don't know whether easily is right or not, but what she tries to do is to say that the orthodox account can can account for this. So, for example, if you have someone who's attracted to someone else who's male, right, but who is gender non-binary, one can say this is not a new sexual orientation, right? This is either same sex or opposite sex sexual orientation, but with a particular preference, namely that the other person's gender presentation is doesn't doesn't cleave to any of the of the prevalent gender presentations prevalent in society. And somebody can go on to say there's nothing surprising about this, because when we look at homosexual orientation and heterosexual orientation, we do indeed see a lot of variety among among people who with, with uh, such uh, sexual preferences a gay man for example might not be attracted at all to bald guys right whereas another gay man could be attracted to bald guys long hair and you can multiply the examples so i think this is one issue for an account such as dembroff's which is why not account for gender-based attractions as some sort of a preference and why make them into into sexual orientations of course dembroff would say because there are there are ethical or political reasons why we want to do this, which we can go into if if we necessary. So just, I, I just say this because I, I'm not saying that Dembroff is bereft of answers. They could have answers and responses.
2: So a challenge for Dembroff's account is when there's cases where perceived sex and gender pull in opposite directions and perceptions are muddied. So the kind of cases that I have in mind are suppose that I believe that I'm homosexual and I am married to a man or at least a person I believe is a man. We've dated for many years, we've had sex many times, I've seen this person's penis, they've said nothing to me to indicate that they're not a man. And one day this person declares to me that they are not a man, they are gender fluid. So sometimes they identify as a man and sometimes they identify as a woman. And this has been going on for some time. Now, what is happening in this situation is—is is my sexual orientation still gay? Have I been gay for until this point, and from this point onwards, it changes, or or unbeknownst to me, have I not been gay the last few months, while uh, my husband, or at least believed this was my husband, was was self-identifying as gender fluid? The point is. These seem like very difficult questions for Dembrov to answer. Very easy questions for Stock to answer, right? So Stock just says, is this a male bodied person? Yes or no. If yes, then I'm gay. If no, then I'm not. Dembrov has some very difficult questions to answer about this case to adjudicate one way or the other. And that seems like a weakness for Dembrov's account.
1: Yeah, it does seem like a weakness. So one of the things you're bringing out in your case, Jason, is that in the interesting case, Jason, is that someone's sexual orientation can actually change a lot depending on the changes in the gender identity of the of the other person. But one thing to notice is that this is not this is not an issue just with Dembrov's account. It is also an issue on the on the on the. Orthodox account. So for example, suppose I'm gay, but I'm dating someone who's, who's a man basically. And the man also decides to, to change, to become a woman. Right. And I continue to be dating that person. Suppose the person does, they do sex reassignment surgery and so on and so forth. And I'm still in a relationship with that guy. The question becomes what happens to my sexual orientation? Right. And there are, you can give different answers to it. You can, somebody could say, I think plausibly somebody could say, well, We cannot simply answer that question just based on that one case we have to also see what happens to your pattern of attraction to other people right if you're still attracted to guys other guys then you're still gay but you are still with that same person out of various other reasons such as because you love the person because you have a history with that blah blah blah. so i don't think the case that i just raised is exactly parallel to the one you raised against Dembrov, but i did want to to bring out the 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 point that even on the Orthodox account, you could get some question marks depending on the kind of case. And also on the Orthodox account, if I change my gender, I will change my sexual orientation. So that, so change in sexual orientation is also hostage to changes in the person themselves. So for example, if I am a gay man and I'm attracted to other men, but I decide that I change my gender to become a woman, right. Then I, and my sexual orientation doesn't change. Then all of a sudden I become a heterosexual woman basically. So changes in sexual orientation are in a way always dependent on changes in gender, depending on how we take the case. But I am with you, that I think there is this, the case that you have given, It might be easier for stock to account for by basically saying, look, that that, that there's nothing there's nothing about the sex of the person with with you, you know, whom you're dating that has changed. So on my account, because orientations are sex based, you you still have the same orientation. The only thing that has changed is the person's gender identity. So you seem to be presenting a case in which the person's gender is simply their inner sense of how they feel, whether they, they whether they think they, they feel they are a man or a woman while keeping everything alive. But I think in the in their essay on sexual, what is sexual orientation? I think Dembrov typically. I think I have to look up the the note, but I think there's a note in which Dembrov says, "I take gender here to mean some sort of gender presentation, right?" So Dembrov might quibble with the kind of case that you have given, basically. In that case, in in, in gen, it, broadly speaking, Dembrov's answer would partly depend on how we understand the notion of gender, what it means, basically. So there's a couple
0: of complicating factors. Um... The other one would be some of the orthodoxy around how you refer to trans people. So our good friend Rebecca Tuval got into a lot of trouble for referring to Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner. And the line is that to do that is to dead name, that there never was a Bruce Jenner, there was only a Caitlyn Jenner. But if we go and return now, let's say you had a first first lesbian wedding in South Africa. We had our first lesbian wedding, I think in the mid nineties. And let's assume that one of those women becomes a man. The orthodoxy now says there never was a lesbian wedding, that it was always a straight marriage. That seems kind of strange when we sort of try to revisit things. And it seems like this is one of my problems, I think, with the conceptual engineering project, is that there's some political purpose in mind. It seems like we could have a range of political purposes, which are going to be at odds with each other, and we can then transform reality in accords with what we think the world ought to look like. So if the flavor of the month at the moment is dead naming is really bad, well, then we can erase the, the lesbian marriage. If we think like historical gay rights moments are important, then we define it differently. That seems sort of odd to me. The other thing I think that Jason hints at is this notion that your sexual orientation surely in most cases must be known to you. It would be strange. Can, I think I can accept that people's orientations can shift. I would think that they're rarely shifting radically back and forth all the time. But even in those cases, the person knows that they're shifting. And in Jason's case, if the person's gender identity shifts unbeknownst to the other person, it would seem strange to say that their orientation shifted.
2: I can imagine cases where your sexual orientation is unknown to you in the sense that you're in denial or consciously unknown. But it seems like in principle, it's knowable to you. With enough self-reflection and therapy, you could work out what your sexual orientation is. But if your partner is gender fluid without telling you or has change their gender without telling you and it's unperceived by you it seems like in principle you cannot know your sexual orientation if it depends on your partner's gender
1: yes i mean i think i think that's a i think that's a that's a very good objection one way of insisting on a certain notion of gender such as gender presentation for example could get around this because somebody could say well look if gender presentation is another part of the basis of sexual orientation and not just sex then we allow the person to know what their sexual orientation is based on not just the sex of the other person but on how the other person gender presents also and so that might get away get around some of the difficulties that you guys have mentioned the dead naming thing and i'm not i i i i've heard of of course i know about all these objections to dead naming and so on and so forth one of the things we have to keep in mind is that a lot of those objections sometimes come from from like from popular culture, from people who just basically knee-jerk, object to certain things and so on and so forth. So we don't expect them to say, to show the kind of nuance that we would expect philosophers to show, right? But I can, I can imagine a philosopher basically arguing that, look, when we talk about these things, we have to distinguish between normative claims, ethical claims, for example, right? And metaphysical claims. And I think, as a matter of fact, I think the conflation of the two has been dogging, this whole discussion of gender. I think the motive for wanting to deny this might be based on some sort of misguided notion of deriving an art from an is Basically, In other words, just because sex is binary, sex is binary, I'm not sure what follows about our treatment of fellow human beings, fellow trans people, fellow cis people, and so on and so forth. But anyway, to go back to the dead naming issue, somebody could make the argument that look as a, as a matter of. Ethical or moral respect of somebody, somebody, right? We do not want to refer to them using their dead name, except in certain contexts, basically, in order to clarify certain things. So, for example, to go to the to the so so to go to the lesbian wedding thing, if we need to refer to the past, right? We might have to basically use the dead name of the person, but that is comparable with a general way of respecting that person by not using their dead name in every context, something. So, this is the ethical part of it. And then you have the metaphysical part, which is that we might have to refer to the person as a she in the past when we were, when we are talking about her past identity, right? Because for metaphysical purposes, for analytical purposes, for conceptual purposes, and so on and so forth. So, so we have to distinguish the two domains. But my point is that even within the ethical domain. It might, somebody might make the argument that it's perfectly compatible with respecting the person to use their dead name for clarification purposes. It might actually be for the own well-being of the person that we need to do so in order to clear up some sort of muddle about their history that tries, arises in, le- in a legal court for some people. I, well, you're the lawyer, Mark, so you tell me. But I mean, I think you get, you get the point. Right?
0: Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to draw. And I can imagine cases where it's if you were to out someone, by, you know, referring to their past sex in a way that would be humiliating for them in a current set of circumstances, that would be a good reason not to deadname them. But there are going to be many cases where, you know, the ethical thing to do and the metaphysically true thing to do is to switch pronouns as you switch in parts of time. I wonder about this related question, which is, given that someone has an orientation, if we take orientation to be some kind of very strong preference, maybe not totally immutable, but very strongly held, whether you can wrong them by deceiving them when you have sex with them. So they, they are a gay man who only wants to have sex with men, and you deceive them by pretending to be a man, for example, when you're actually not a man, you're a woman. And if we think that you've done something wrong under these circumstances, and then I wonder if we have done something wrong in, in that case, have we done something wrong f- in Dembroff's cases? So when you've deceived them about your, your gender presentation, or with other druthers, it turns out you're actually you know, not as fat as you told the person you were on Tinder, and they're, they're very keen on on overweight people, that's their sexual preference. Or you dyed your hair, or you're not really wearing leather, it's pleather. There's different kinds of degrees of, of deception, and I wonder if we can just have an ordinary account which is of morality, which is that generally it's wrong to set aside someone's interests, whether we think that you're doing something wrong in all of these cases, and whether it gets more and more wrong in the sex deception case versus the other cases
1: just to just to clarify something earlier mark when you said you can deceive someone about whether you're a man or a woman what what kind of what is the method of deception that we're talking about here I mean, what do you have in mind by like gender presenting as a man but you are actually biologically speaking a woman or are we talking here simply about for all intents and purposes looking exactly as a as a man but somehow you have an inner sense that you are a woman and you don't disclose that which type of case are we talking about?
0: Yes, it seems like you could have two kinds of deception. There's a great um, film called Madam, Madam Butterfly, where uh, the lead character falls in love with someone who he believes to be a woman who is actually male. So I think uh, just for clarity's sake, then we'll say, when I say male, I mean biologically male, and let's say a man could be the the gender presentation of it. And it seems like the deception could happen in two cases. So the one is that you lie about what your biological sex is, and the other one is that, let's say, you lie about what your gender is. And it seems like if what Dembrov thinks could also matter for orientation is the gender, it seems like those cases of deception about what your gender presentation are just strike us as less bad cases of deception. But maybe I'm mistaken.
1: So there's a nice essay in The Philosophy of Sex, which is by Thomas Mapps. And it's all about... Um when it is morally wrong to use someone else sexual, basically, right? And MAPS basically gives a criterion of informed voluntary consent. So he says, anytime you uh, have sex with someone and you undermine either, their, either the voluntariness of their sexual acts, so say, say rape would be an example of undermining the of voluntary nature of someone having sex with you, or if you undermine the informative aspect of, of their sex, that would, that would be an example of an immoral sexual use of someone. Suppose two people hook up in a bar, right? And suppose, suppose for some reason, the guy doesn't want to have sex with any person who has donated a kidney in the past, right? You know, for some reason they have this court. They just wouldn't have sex with somebody who has donated the kidney. And the other person that they meet and that uh, that they have sparks with has actually donated a kidney, but the other person thinks that their medical history basically is nobody else's business, right? So whether they donated a kidney or have had uh, an appendectomy or whatever is, is is covered by their privacy norms. So they end up having sex with each other, right? And the, and then they get intimate and they're in bed snuggling and having whatever a croissant, uh, a vegan croissant, and coffee, whatever. And the guy says, "Hey, by the way." I didn't tell you this, but I'm going to share something very intimate with you. I donated a kidney one time, because I like to brag about what they have done. I donated a kidney, and the other guy just flies into a rage. What you've donated a kidney? That's relevant information. I never sleep with people who donated against. Why didn't you tell? You know. So here we are. So here we face some sort of an interesting dilemma. On the one hand, we want, and that's what my students say all the time. Right? They say the decision as to whether the person has been deceived or not depends entirely on what the person deems to be relevant information so if I think that the relevant information is is whether somebody has donated the kidney or not that's that's what should be ruled in basically as the relevant information it's not an objective way of deciding the matter right but then you have you have other people who think that say who say that look there are some objective there are some facts that that it's none of other people's business to know about basically so the question becomes is knowing someone's sex or gender identity one of those relevant information or not now it seems to be highly relevant right because if i'm if i'm a gay man i don't know why i keep saying if i'm a gay man i'm a gay man and i'm so interested i'm so i'm interested in sleeping with with guys to whom i'm attracted and part of what that means it's a necessary condition it's not sufficient that they have you know the right sort of equipment so if i meet someone who gender presents as a man but turns out to be biologically a woman, and they don't reveal this to me early on, I think that would be a case of deception, especially if they do that knowingly, right? If they know that, you know, that they're doing this. Now, I'm not sure whether Dembrov's account faces this issue in any way, more so than any other account of sexual orientation. In other words, Dembroff could say, whether you conceive of sexual orientation as based on both sex or gender, or sex and gender, or one or the other, there are always going to be ways in which one party can deceive the other party. Right. And I am in favor of no deception in this case. Right. So if I find out that my potential sexual partners preference is for this and that, And I might be coming across, now I don't know whether Dembrov would say this, but it seems to me that their account is perfectly compatible with something like this. And I come across as potentially being something that the other person might not think I am, then I might have some sort of moral obligation to disclose to that person, basically. So in other words, Dembrov's account doesn't necessarily seem to shoulder this issue in any heavier ways than than other accounts, I think.
2: So something very interested and related to Mark's question or objection is this question of self-identification so if I self-identify as having a certain gender a can I be wrong and b is it okay for others to point that out and there's a fantastic essay in your latest edition by Ozturk about this and you mentioned this distinction between metaphysics and ethics earlier and in that essay that distinction is drawn out explicitly but I think in the wrong way so I wonder if you can talk a bit more about that and I'll have some follow-up objections.
1: So yeah, in the philosophy of sex the age tradition, we have two essays on addressing gender issues, right? One is Catherine Jenkins, which seems to be specifically about the metaphysics of it. And then you have Osterk's essay, which is about the ability to... which is Osterk's pushing a little bit against the idea that people have what is called a first-person authority over their, over their gender identity. And so... And so that's a, that's an ethical position because, um, the idea behind it is that if I genuinely believe that I am a man or I am a woman, for example, then it, then it is, then other parties have some sort of moral obligation to respect my beliefs in this respect, basically, and to abide by the gender that I declare the gender to be now, there is a question here that if I am mistaken about my gender identity, right, it might still be on the on the ethical version of it of the first person authority. It might still be it might still be argued that despite the, the possibility of error on my part, it would still be morally morally obligated on other parties to to ethically respect my decision, basically. And you can make parallel cases. To other areas in our lives where we, we believe people can be mistaken about certain things so for example and not to, to trivialize the gender thing but for example you can have a friend who believes that they are really one of the best cooks among the group of friends basically right and all the friends in the group know that he's a good cook but he's not nearly as great as he thinks he is right but still think that perhaps it might be the kind thing to do to basically go along with the idea that he's the best cook. Now, I can see opposite arguments, of course, having to do with the duties of friendship. You want to say to the person at some point in some manner, hey, tone it down. You're not that good of a cook. But, you know, you can see one argument as to why we want to respect their view on this, even though um, they might be mistaken. So anyway, putting this issue aside, you, so you have Burkai, osterk's essay, in which he basically argues that when you look at other identities other than gender identities you look at religious identities you look at political identities we don't seem to have a problem with people arguing with the person who claims that identity right and so he wants to say i don't see any principal difference between those types of cases and the case of gender identity right but of course part of what burka, part of what burka wants to argue in this in his essay is Just because in principle, somebody can reject a certain identity doesn't mean that the mode of rejection and the conditions under which somebody can reject an identity are just a free for all, basically. And I think he outlines three conditions that such rejections must adhere to, all of them, all three, not one of the three or two of the three, in order for the rejection to be morally permissible, such as not causing harm, respecting the person's privacy, and doing it with dignity, rejecting with dignity, basically. So I'm not
2: sure, Jason, whether that's answering your question or, or whether or you want me to say Laurel. Yeah. No, I mean, that does answer my question. What I'm very interested in is the kind of case that arises in a very popular television series. It's called Sex Education. It showed on Netflix recently, the second season. So one of the characters, I forget his name, he falls in love uh, with a female body person who identifies as gender fluid. He identifies as heterosexual. Um, and he wants a relationship with what he takes to be her. And this, they say to, to him, I don't want to be in a relationship with you because if we were in a relationship, this would be a queer relationship. And you don't see, which would make you queer. And you don't see yourself as queer, you see yourself as a cisgendered, heterosexual male. and And he accepts this, but I wonder whether he should. So it seems to me like in that situation, he's facing exactly this problem that Oz Turk raises, which is if, if he rejects their gender identity as gender fluid, he has committed a faux pas. He hasn't respected these three conditions. It may, it may impinge upon their dignity. So he, he can't point this out. And, and, and in, in the series, that's exactly what happens. He, he doesn't point this out. But it seems like the gender that matters here is the gender that is perceived on his part, not the gender that they actually have. That's the gender that seems to matter for his sexual orientation. And the gender that matters is that he sees them as a her. He sees them as a woman. And so for him, it's no problem to engage in the sexual relationship. I I wonder whether the gender that matters is the perceived gender rather than the self-identified gender when it comes to sexual orientation
1: um yeah Yeah, that's a difficult case so when you say the gender that matters basically matters to whom matters for the question of his sexual orientation so there are a number of factors i think that are involved in this case one is the question of whether he would accept to be in a in a relationship that would adequately be described as queer right so that's one thing another question is whether he himself sees his partner as a gender fluid person, while at the same time agreeing that she is female as a person. Right. So so one question is, and I'm not sure what I'm not sure what the details of the case is. It could be that the man in question basically agrees that his partner is gender fluid. Right. But that he also sees her as female and that his partner, right, his partner also agrees with that in other words his partner basically said suppose his partner has embraced the distinction between sex and gender right so basically says i distinguish more or less sharply between someone's sex and someone's gender identity right i do not deny that my that my sex is female but i do want to claim that i don't cleave to any specific gender i am gender fluid so in that case, it will depend whether the whether the male partner, the guy partner in the relationship has any reason to believe that his partner is not gender fluid. So that that is that that's that's going to become the question. Does he see any reasons in in, in the person with whom he's dating to think that somehow sh- they are mistaken about their identity, basically? If yes then we are in a whole different ballpark, right? Then the, the questions that osterk's essay raises become become paramount. In other words, should he reject their identity? Under what conditions should he reject? But if if the guy has no reason to believe that, if, if if the guy has no reason to doubt that his partner is gender fluid, then I don't see the issue necessarily coming up as far as Burkai's essay is concerned,
2: if that yeah, makes sense. He- I think he does at least unconsciously doubt their gender identity as gender fluid. He sees her as a her. And what's interesting to me is there's an interesting question whether he might be in a heterosexual relationship, but they might be in a queer relationship. So there actually might be two different relationships at play here.
1: Well, probably not, because if we assume an objective answer to this question, one of them is going to be mistaken, about it, right? So assuming that, I mean, somebody could say, look, you can describe, you can, you can describe the relationship in two different ways. I don't see a problem with that. That's fine. There might be an interesting tension there, but we can live with it. It's not a big deal. But as far as Osterich's essay is concerned, I think it's interesting because in his essay, Burkai doesn't, the kind of rejections that Burkai has in mind in his essay seem to be public rejections. In other words, what to do when you are confronted in a situation, for example, when, you, when, when there are onlookers, basically, what people you work with in an office, and so on and so forth. When it comes to the question of being in a relationship with someone, I think the conditions might very well change. In other words, there might be more. I, I, I don't know what Burkai what would say about this because he has addressed it. So this is Raja speaking. I'm not ch- channeling Burkai. I would say that there is more of an obligation for me in that, suppose I'm the guy in that relationship, right? I would say that there's more of an obligation for me, if not to reject the identity, but at least to have some sort of a discussion with the person about the identity for a number of reasons. One is that when you are in a personal relationship with someone, you have the privacy sphere. For the two of you to discuss the identity and go back and forth of it there is that the question of the question of rejection with dignity and so on and so forth doesn't arise as much because couples often talk freely about certain things when they are in the privacy of their own relationship so to speak right but the other thing relationships often generate their own obligations i might not have an obligation to someone else to talk to them about their identity right and i might choose to do so if i think it's an important reason but if i'm with someone for whom I care, and I think they might be deeply mistaken about their identity, then I might have some sort of obligation to question them about it, basically. And there are also quest- obligations generated by the nature of wanting to preserve the relationship. If I have doubts, if I insist on wanting to be in a heterosexual relationship, and yet my partner insists on being gender fluid, which might make the relationship queer, as you mentioned. And then I might say to myself, well, look, I'm interested in preserving this relationship, but I'm also interested in preserving it in a certain way that doesn't allow me to, that doesn't make me want to abandon certain beliefs of mine. So it's important for me to talk to my partner about this to clarify the situation. So that gives us, I think, so the context of a relationship gives us additional reasons, not necessarily to reject someone's identity, but certainly to have a certain conversation about this and try to come to terms with what might be going on in terms of of, of seeing, uh, eye to eye on certain things.
0: So this notion that relationships might require shared beliefs is interesting. So in the show that non-binary character dates a woman and that woman believes in aliens. And it's very important to her that the non-binary character also believe in aliens. And uh, they go off to uh, a picnic together and they wait a starship to arrive with a whole bunch of other people. And the non-binary character thinks it's completely silly and ridiculous, and at some point says, I just can't go along with this anymore. You know, I can't endorse your fantasies. And this causes huge tension in the relationship. And you might think that what's going on in the first case where the man is attracted to the non-binary character is if he doesn't really believe in her non-binary status, he's not willing to indulge her beliefs. Um, whether they're true or not is sort of besides the point, but there's a mismatch uh, in their collective beliefs about the gender of their character and that's why the relationship can't work. I'd like to touch on something else, which is that this edition has come out to some controversy on the basis that you've included the orthodox view written by Stock in the book. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and what your reflections are on it.
1: Yeah, sure. So the the, the controversy the controversy started. And I, I, I want to make sure, I want to say at the outset that I don't think it has been so far a big controversy. I think so far it's been contained, but who knows? So the controversy started when I announced the book in a group on Facebook called the teaching philosophy group, which I think has about almost 4,000 members, 3,800 members, something like that, basically. And so I immediately got a few naysayers responding to the comments, basically saying things like asking rhetorically, you added an essay by Stark as if the mere mention of her name is an argument in and of itself you had some other people chiming in and saying what an essay by stock a vomiting emoji or a hard pass or things like that and there were a couple of people who said um, an essay by stock i'm buying the book definitely so you got you got both sides of this thing where you have these quick bites comments in the thing that basically neither here nor there basically and I think there were some people who asked some interesting questions in the in the facebook thing somebody asking whether whether we would include for example well, whether we would ask our students to read essays by people who are racist or we would ask our students to read essays that are racist, that advanced racist points of view. And if we don't, why is that? Why is the answer basically? Is it because we have all come to agree that racism is wrong, but then we would include essays by people who are like stock, for example, who might deny that trans women are women. And, and is the reason why we would include such essays because the issue hasn't been set up, but there's still some controversy about it. But then along, alongside of Twitter, uh, alongside of Facebook, I've come to realize that, um, a graduate student at the university of british columbia tweeted basically his outrage at the fact that this essay was included in the book and he got some support and and, and i got some misguided support I, I can't remember who some person said maybe there is a good reason to add, to add to include an anthology only for it to be demolished which i don't think is a good reason to include an anthology i mean anthologies don't have in unlimited space so you don't want to include the essays just for that be criticized but you know that the poor sap the graduate student i mean got inundated with emails that basically accused them of hypocrisy and all sorts of things and there were some comical moments in there about but i actually felt bad for him because a mob is a mob <laughs> kind of at the end of the day and he's just a graduate student
2: it seems to me like if there's a position that's very commonly held it's as stock says the orthodox view which sounds correct it sounds like a true description that her view is the orthodox view, it's the view that's been held traditionally for a very long time by the majority of people, and perhaps still today is, perhaps not by the majority of academics, and perhaps not by the majority of people in women's studies or in sociology departments, but certainly in wider society, it seems important that that view be aired, perhaps not to be demolished, but at least to open a conversation where objections can be raised. And it's also not the only essay on the topic, it appears right next to Dembrov's essay, which presents a, a radical alternative. And it, it seems like one function of it could very well be to provide a foil or uh, show the differences uh, between the orthodox view and a new position like Dembrov's.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there are, I mean, our students come from the public, basically. Right. And in public universities, they fund our institutions. Right. So I would, I would hope that our students at least get and get, get to, get to read an account that seems to resonate with most of the public, if not most of the academics. Right. Sometimes we forget in our classes that we're only going to expose our students to whatever is the latest thing that's coming down the pipeline of academia. And we forget that there are other views that our students might want to be able to think about in in, in connection with those views so yes a stock's essay in the book is in conversation with denmbros actually there was one comment on facebook I, I can't remember who put it but somebody said oh the, i think the idea is uh to juxtapose the, the two out of fairness and then set, followed by or that's awful or something like that i' i mean i didn't i we didn't juxtapose them out of fairness. I'm not sure to whom the fairness is going to be, maybe to the students at best, but but I don't see what's so ugly about this. I mean, yeah, I mean, suppose we put Stark next to the Dembroff essay so that the students can get to see how far academics have gone into this discussion, where we have a position such as Dembrov's that is very revisionist of the concept of sexual orientation to the point where another philosopher has to come in and say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't see why we should abandon the orthodox view so quickly in light of this, right? So I think it's very good for the students to see both to both views. And also, the essays are not the only two essays on sexual orientation in the books. They're, they're among, of we have an essay on asexuality, right, by by Natasha McKeever and Luke Brunning. We have an essay on zoophilia by, by Kathy Rudy. And we have other essays that sort of flirt with this. So for example, we have an essay on sex and technology in which Neil MacArthur towards the end makes the case that there is such an identity as the G-sexuality, right? And that comes close. He thinks it's a sexual identity. It's a new type of identity, right? And that comes close to somebody having the identity of being gay or, or straight or whatnot. Um, even though, of course, sexual orientation and sexual identity are not exactly ident- identical with each other for all sorts of reasons. Um, we also have an essay on polyamory, for example, by Brake, Elizabeth Brake. Which in which she also flirts with the idea as to whether polyamory is a sexual orientation. So the essay works as a, among a cluster of, of other essays that deal with the issue. And I think teachers who use the book and scholars who read the book are free to pick and choose the order of the essays. They're free to pick and choose whichever essays they want. So to come and just say that the essay should not be given a platform in the book for whatever reason, seems to be outweighed by a lot of other benefits to do it. Even, even if there are some good reasons for not putting it, which I doubt, but even if there are, there seem to be other reasons that might outweigh those reasons. I, I, would, I would certainly like to hear reasons that are decisive in favor of not including BSA.
0: What's interesting about the book is that it's the eighth edition. So it's gone through many changes and that certain prominent essays have been removed. And I think partly because they were once controversial and now no longer. So, for example, there used to be a lot of essays around whether it is immoral to be gay or whether we should have gay marriage. And in some senses, I think those essays have been excluded because it seems like there's some widespread consensus that there's nothing wrong with being gay and we now have legal gay marriage. On this question around polyamory and sexual orientation, so there might be a political reason to want to describe it as an orientation, uh, which is partly that a lot of statutes will refer to protected classes of people like race, sex, religion, and also sexual orientation. So the African constitution, for example, lists sexual orientation as a protected class. And that was... The reason why we have gay marriage in south africa was the idea is that you can't discriminate against people on the of sexual orientation so therefore you can't ban gay marriage and that opens up room for things like the legalization of polyamorous marriage people that want to marry multiple partners on the grounds that it is also a sexual orientation now just because there's a political purpose wouldn't necessarily make it true so i wonder if you think a polyamory does amount to a sexual orientation or not
1: my So my initial reaction is to think that it is not a sexual orientation. I don't think it's a sexual orientation because of course, part of it depends on your conception of sexual orientation, right? But if you if you go with the orthodox view, for instance, let's stick with, with a common view, it's not a sexual orientation because sexual orientations are typically conceived of as your sexual attraction to somebody else on the basis of their sex category, right? So you can be a homosexual, heterosexual, or, you know, or a bisexual polyamory as such, doesn't seem to be about this at all. It seems to be about people wanting the option to be in multiple, multiple relationships and break has a break one break. Doesn't define polyamory in any specific way. She says there could be different forms of it and so on and so forth. It seems you can have you can have someone who's a homosexual, right, who wants to be in a an monogamous relationship. And you can have someone who's a homosexual who wants to be in a polyamorous relationship. There is another thing, so there are two more reasons why I think why I why I I don't think that polyamory is a sexual orientation. One reason is that I don't think polyamory is just about sex, basically. Whereas I think sexual orientation is first and foremost about sexual attraction. Polyamory, and I know there's, people will push back against this, but I think polyamory is also about multiple loves, basically. So it's about the ability for someone to be in a, say, triangular or quadrilangular relationship Uh, with other people whether they're all in love with each other or some of them with each other it depends on the specific configuration but it seems that love is an important dimension whereas I don't think love is a is part of our conception of sexual orientation the other thing is that and I'm not sure whether Brake is right about this but if Brake is right about this she seems to think that to be a polyamorous is not just to find yourself by happenstance so to speak in in a group love relationship it's also to be a certain it's also to have certain kind of values so for example a polyamorous person is 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 someone who believes that possessiveness is wrong and it is abetted by monogamy it is someone who believes that honesty is fantastic and he thinks that and and, and they think that monogamy actually undermines honesty in so far as it leads people to cheat and so on and so forth so in so far as we think as polyamory as this kind of value-infused identity, right? It seems to go way beyond our conception of sexual orientation. So I don't think polyamory is a
2: sexual orientation for those reasons. I think it's a very good answer as someone who does believe that polyamory is a sexual orientation. It's a very good answer because if you define sexual orientation purely in terms of sex, the activity and uh, the sex of the person that you're attracted to together with your own sex or the orthodox view, then, then you're going to arrive at that result. But at the same time, I want to deny what Brake is saying about polyamory being a choice of values. It does seem to me like to be successfully polyamorous, you're going to have to adopt a series of values. You're going to have to adopt an understanding around jealousy and possessiveness or non-possessiveness and around honesty. That sounds right to me that to have successful polyamorous relationships, you would need to do that. But you could be have unsuccessful polyamorous relationships. And on her definition, that's impossible. So so that's that's a problem. So what I what I want to suggest then is let's accept your definition of sexual orientation and say that polyamory is a relationship orientation. So in other words, it's a, a way of understanding the way people are oriented towards relationships. I'm polyamorous and I, from as early as I can remember, was very unhappy in monogamous relationships. Although who I isn't? didn't fully understand what yeah, who isn't yeah. <laughs> yeah very good point. <laughs> if my husband used this, he's like anyway, go on. Yes, go ahead, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we we can we can selectively publish so your husband doesn't see the episode. <laughs> but but yeah, then I want to argue from a relationship relationship orientation to a sexual orientation. So I want to say something like yes, I can imagine being attracted to a man without being in a polyamorous setup with this man. But it seems like there's a certain kind of sexual attraction that happens in a relationship that's distinct from the sexual attraction that happens outside of a relationship. At least some of the time, there's a qualitative flavor to it that's distinct. And then I want to say, okay, but if polyamory is a relationship orientation, and if relationships come with a certain kind of sexual orientation, then it does seem like polyamory has some sort of sexual orientation so one way to handle your so <coughs> one way to deal to uh, to handle this is an interesting case definitely
1: uh but consider consider your run-of-the-mill male non polyamorous homosexual man right for example or homosexual woman right this homosexual man finds some complete stranger very sexually attractive They have a one hour stand with each other, one hour, five minute stand with each other, it's over. There is nothing extra special, you know, but this same homosexual man meets another man. He's sexually attracted to him, but there's also this like additional spark. They're really attracted to each other in all sorts of different ways. They're drawn to each other. They like the conversation level. When they have sex with each other, it has a certain flavor to it that you don't feel when you have sex with strangers completely. So that happens even in a long, even, even when you are monogamously oriented, that that's not going to push us to say that monogamy is a sexual orientation. It's just going to basically say that sex with love or sex with intimacy or sex with affection has a different feel to it than sex with strangers. And I think you can say, you can take the same thing and apply it to now. I don't want to deny that somebody might have relationship orientation. Definitely. And in, in certainly in this, I mean, you have a lot of people who, well, I am, maybe orientation is not a right word for it, but I'm not going to quibble about words. Somebody definitely, you have definitely people who would flat out reject any idea of being with more than one person, right? Whether they're being hypocritical or not is a different issue. So you can call them monogamy oriented, right? In the sense that that's where they want to be. That's where they're heart's desire is, or they might feel revulsion at the idea, or like deep anger at the idea of their spouse being shared with someone else. Whether this is right or not is a different question, obviously, right? And you can have someone who feels the exact same way about about monogamy. So I definitely think you're onto something that there might be something that is this relationship orientation, but I I don't I I wouldn't want to conflate it with sexual orientation for the reasons I. Do. So you
0: have claims of people being demisexuals or sapiosexuals. So the sapiosexual says, let's make an exclusive one. I'm only attracted to people who have brilliant minds. And the demisexual says, I'm only attracted to people who I love. Now, if those things are mere preferences, it's just like, I'm only attracted to blondes. It doesn't play a role in sexual orientation. Then we might think that polyamory is like that. In other words, I'm only attracted to people who have this polyamorous preference, or I can only be attracted to people when I'm in this mode of being in multiple relationships at the same time. It requires you know, uh, a certain setup to be attracted. Then we might think that there's some sort of uh, weight to the notion that it could amount to an orientation. But it does seem that there's a slipperiness on what counts as orientation. We can either take this very strict view that orientation is totally limited to the sex of the person you're attracted to, or we open up the bars and say, "Well, it has these other flavors to it, like your gender, like your intelligence, like the color of your hair."
1: Yeah, I think so. This is this is a, this is a very difficult. This is a very difficult issue, and I think there is no way around empirical studies about what people. And I think these empirical studies are going to be fraught with difficulties because how you frame the study, how you frame the questions, is already going to be inflected by what you think a sexual orientation is so it's going to be an uphill struggle basically but my point is that at some point you need some good empirical studies about this that have to be replicated or done from different theoretical points of view and whatnot however so if you think of sapiosexuals for example or demisexuals one way to consider them and i'll come back to the other cases in a a second one way to think about them so suppose i'm a demisexual that means i'm not attracted to someone unless i am in love with them or i'm or, or or I'm remote, remote, romantically drawn for example, right? The, whether demisexuality is a sexual orientation in addition to homosexuality and bisexuality, and I'm again I'm not going by Dembrov's view here. I'm I'm going by the orthodox view. Whether demisexuality is an additional sexual orientation is going to be hostage to answering a very important question: Is the attract is the demisexual attracted to someone else? Ultimately, based on their sex or what is going on here. So for example, suppose, I meet, suppose I'm a straight guy and I meet another man, and I'm very much drawn to being in his company and talking to him about philosophy and whatnot. That is not going to make me a demisexual as far as he's concerned, if I'm not sexually attracted to him because he's a man, right? So if, 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 if I'm a demisexual who's attracted to people after I'm romantically involved with them, but such that my romance ultimately depends on the sex to which they belong, right? Then demisexuality is not going to carve out a new sexual orientation. It's going to be a subcategory of whichever sexual orientation. In other words, demisexuals would be either those homosexuals or heterosexuals or bisexuals who happen to have a certain kind of quirk in their sexual orientation, which is that they're not going to be attracted to anybody until they are romantically attracted to them first, basically and something similar can be said about sabusexuals, right i think the difficult cases is not going to come from demisexuals and sabusexuals. i think the difficult now it won't even come from pansexuals because pansexuals ultimately are going to be attracted to particular sexes or all the sexes basically right so they're going to be sex based i think the difficult cases are going to come from those types of sexual orientations that are for example i read recently that there's a sexual orientation towards trees right? People are just sexually erotically attracted to trees, right? Now, you could, uh, I, you could take an arbophile, let's call it arbophilia, right? You can take an arbophile, let's call him randomly Jason, right? <laughs> and you can, put, you can put Jason in an armchair and psychoanalyze the hell out of him, right? You might, and you might want to do that because you want to see whether in Jason's complicated psyche, there is a connection between men and trees, basically. I mean, maybe when Jason was a child, his father would always bring a huge tree and plant it in his bedroom before Jason went to sleep. And so Jason developed this connection between father figurehood and and trees, right? So when he grew up, he's attracted to trees. So that kind of arbophilia in the the case of Jason is not going to be that far away from sex-based attractions because there there is a connection there. So the real interesting cases would be those arbophiles who have no have no connection to sex-based attractions whatsoever then we have an issue of whether that's a sexual orientation and to give you my view on this i don't think we can conceptually rule out such sexual orientations just because commonly speaking most sexual orientations are sex-based or gender-based or however you want to describe them right i mean as if there's one thing we know about human sexuality is that It can be pretty complicated and it can be pretty diverse. I mean, it's a lot of them are statistically rare, but they're possible, right? So I wouldn't want to say that there are no sexual orientations. It's not possible to have a sexual orientation unless it is somehow sex-based. I think we should leave conceptual rule for such sexual orientations. And this is something that I find to be a, a problem with accounts such as Dembrov's and Stocks, in that I find them limiting in this way, right? Now, they might be... Limiting in a reasonable way, because from what we know, most sexual orientations seem to be like that.
0: I think it's pretty clear that Jason has been hiding in plain sight. He tells <laughs> us that he's, uh, you know, a homosexual polyamorous, but I see that tree in the background and I see that very good-looking woman on your wall, Jason. I think you've been outed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've had this tree for since I was twenty-one. So, Long-term relationship. Yeah, I mean, the evidence want... is there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Raj. Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, it was a great episode.